after the revolution, what are you going to do if you can't grow your own food? And I think that Flint also shows that like guns sure shit didn't help anybody get clean water. I mean, maybe if they pulled up on the right person, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and ask for clean water, maybe that would have changed some Do things. Some John but, stuff? Um, Are you recommending? You know, <laughs> no, and John oh, my, oh my gosh, no, not absolutely not. Um. <laughs> Welcome to the Zora's Daughters podcast. I'm Alyssa, Black woman, using she, her, her pronouns, and socially distanced anthropology PhD student currently living in New York City. And I'm Brendan, Black woman and socially distanced field worker. Ooh, field worker. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say that, but I'm doing field work and based in Baltimore currently. My pronouns are also she, her, hers. All right. So today we're going to be unpacking climate change environmental justice, and the Anthropocene with our three segments, what's the word, what we're reading, and what in the world. And in case you're like, we don't really have to think about climate change, like we black. No, environmental justice is racial justice. And hopefully you will get to hear and learn and understand more about that as we make our way through this episode. Period. If you would like to follow us on social media, you can find us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. And if you would like us to host a virtual workshop on Black feminist anti-racism for your organization, you can book us by emailing Pod at gmail.com. And we also love monetary and non-monetary support which means follow us on social media, share our posts and episodes. One of, our, one of our posts is blowing up right now, actually. And thank you all for that. <laughs> I don't know who shared it, but it is blown up. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on, on Apple Podcasts. And, you know, in these turbulent times, put you and yours first. But if you can spare some coin, you can donate to us at bit.ly slash support ZDP. Oh, it rhymes. (laughs) And there you can make a one-time or recurring donation. And thanks to those who have signed up and made recurring donations. Shout out to my aunt. I love you. (laughs) And thank you. Thank you. Um, Alyssa, what's been helping you survive quarantine, girl? Because it's rough out here. (sighs) Tell me about it. Honestly, so it's been a lot a lot of TV, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, all of mm-hmm. it, all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Summer Bay, you know, hey. spending a lot of time together. And a little bit, this podcast, like working on this has really helped me because I really have not been exercising that reading muscle very much recently. And I also find that my concentration has been awful. Mm-hmm. So I tried to do this book a day challenge, which I did over our winter break earlier this year I remember I was impressed I was like let me <laughs> let me get on my shit but <laughs> but it's just been more like a chapter a day at best but I've been reading Sister Outsider which has been like it has just been snatching my soul thank you Audrey Lord. I love it but yeah this week has been rough you know um for various reasons I'm just I'm like nearly ready to just throw in the towel and like activate my Gilead escape plan yo yo what the (laughs) like 
you know, what in the flying pigs foot. I just feel like, <sighs> what's the point? Some days. And then, yes, this podcast keeps me going because it's like, oh, I have things to do, um, things to read about, ways to move forward at in, you know, quasi-academic kind of way. And, you know, we were just talking before we started recording. You know, I recently lost someone who is close to me in my childhood and this week and just also got some bad news about a, a grant, got rejected. <sighs> and, and my little Pisces moon in herself is like, no, don't be bitter about it, girl. You could, you know, you just reapply. But I don't know. I'm like, hmm, I have question marks around this grant review process. Um, but yeah, that's not the hand or there. Also wish I could activate an escape plan. But as I am an African-American <laughs> descended from enslaved folks, I'm like, where else I'm going to go? You know, um, Ghana will take you. Ghana's Ghana, ready to repatriate African-Americans. I need Ghanaians to be accepting of me and my bae, my boo, mm. um, and not assume that we're like siblings or something, you know, and right. I, I don't want to pretend that I'm not in love with the person I'm in love with. So we'll see. Plan B, once once Ghana that stops killing quote unquote homosexuals, I might be able to, <laughs> might be able to go there. Um but other than that, I don't know. I, I got therapy today, so I'll be whew, me and my therapist. Alice will come uh collect me. She'll collect me. Listen, sure. they've been collecting. Oh my goodness. This week, I told you, mine dragged me. <laughs> mine Yo, dragged me. She like damn. <laughs> I don't know what it it's like. How do you it's like how do you know what to say? Like, how do you know exactly what to say to get at the heart of the shit that I was trying to hide from you? Like I'm telling you. You know, every time she asked me, Are you sure this is not about your relationship to your mother? I'd be like, damn. You know, damn, Alice, could I, can I live? Can I breathe? Could you take your foot off my neck, please? Um, <laughs> telling you. <laughs> Mine's just like, are you sure that that's not a, you know, related to not feeling like you have control? And I was just like, you're not First really going to call out my control issues today. First of all, what we're not about <laughs> to do is act like being in control is not the move, okay? Exactly. <laughs> like, but they, yes. Yes, looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. One of the things that we did want to address was something that we talked about or didn't talk about or didn't mention in our last episode, which is, you know, some people called us out about this that mm -hmm. we never said what <laughs> WAP stands for. And we were talking about, you know, like women empowerment and being comfortable with all these words. And Brendan, you, I mean, you did point it out, you know, towards the end. You were just like, damn, we never said that. And you know what? I think, at least for me, I just, I haven't really decided if this is an academic podcast, if this is professional, or if I should start like ticking that explicit box when I upload the episode. <laughs> so I suppose that in some ways we're kind of like, you know, limiting ourselves within a sort of politic of professionalism, or dare I say, respectability. So that's, that's where we're at, or at least that's where I'm at, I should say. Yeah, I agree. So for me, it was just like, I think about the fact that now that I know students that I've had before listen to this, I'm like, oh, you know, do I want them to know that Miss Tynes um, knows these words and says these words? You know, that's kind of 
where I'm at with it. But yes, definitely operating within a politic of respectability um, and also just all these things in academia about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. And I was reflecting on how a lot of like black queer studies work brings those words like you know, F-U-C-K and, um, <laughs> and um, you know, pussy or whatever into the actual academic language. And so I'm like, okay, maybe that's something we can lean on, you know, Black queer studies as a methodology of taking what is seen as explicit or should not be quote unquote professional and bringing it into the professional space because it does, in fact, inform our research, right? So... Yeah, I don't know. That's something I've been thinking around, but y'all could tell yeah. us what you prefer. I know my <laughs> friends will be like, girl, my friends have told me this is the most like censored they've ever heard me speak. So, and if you know me in real life and you're my friend, then you know that I cuss a lot. So it's like difficult me too. for me. Me too. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I definitely, you know, we can think about queering the professional and queering the respectable mm. and, you know, we can... We can discuss that more. And let's, you know, I, I agree. Like, I want to hear what, what y'all have to say. Um, Be like, bring on the, bring on the cursing. Okay. <laughs> and we'll, we'll see what we can do. Um, but yeah, I think we should go ahead and get started because our word for today is one that you probably have not encountered unless you are an anthropologist who's interested in this type of stuff. Like, honestly. So Alyssa, what's the word for today? All right. Our word for the day is Anthropocene. And we're probably going to say it <laughs> differently and wrong and, you know, confusedly. I know. <laughs> throughout I, the episode. I literally say it differently each time I say it. So yeah. it's e- either it's Which Anthropocene is, or Anthropocene. So <laughs> It's fine. Decolonized language and all that. So Anthropocene. So this is like a new suggested epic in the geological timescale. I don't know how much you remember from geography, but there are all these different like timescales, right? You've got the eras, periods, epics, ages, and all of this stuff. I never listened. <laughs> I never. I, I, like, I no, was like, you weren't about that life. Preparing for this, like, oh, this is when eighth grade science would have been, I should have tuned in a little more. Sorry, Miss Yelton. I should have tuned in more. Um, <laughs> I was going through some things and puberty took took that away. (laughs) These were like way too long. I mean, these are just like (laughs) grand time scales that are kind of in in many senses unfathomable, I think. Um, So, yeah. So the Anthropocene is this new one before that or currently, you know, depending on who you ask, we were in the Holocene. And that was from like the end of the last glacial period. And all of this is part of the Cenozoic era. Girl, I have no idea what that means. I'm like, does that have something to do with dinosaurs? Like, I literally yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I get preparing for this. I'm like, Cenozoic, dino, Triassic. Yeah. But. Triassic period. <laughs> is, that, is that Jurassic Jurassic Park? Um, no. So, so the Anthropocene, it means age of humans. It comes from Anthropos, which is Greek for human, which, you know, has the same root as anthropology. And scene, which comes from Cenozoic. And the term was coined in 2000 by Paul Crutzen and Eugene Stormer. And they argued that we've entered this new epic. It's characterized by the significant influence of human activity on geological processes and condi- conditions. 
was going to say contradictions, which we're going to get to later. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of debate about this. I actually took a course I took at an environmental history of New York City course my first semester, which it was a really interesting class. And I learned a lot about New York City and the history and stuff. But one of the debates was like, what's the golden spike going to be? And that's mm-hmm. the golden spike is like this marker where scientists can be like, okay, that's the start of the Anthropocene. And so in 2019, the Anthropocene Working Group, they decided that the spike would be in the mid 20th century, AKA the atomic age, AKA when folks started bombing stuff up. And so with the detonation of all of this, like all these atomic bombs, there was debris and radioactive particles and they're now embedded in like glacial ice and sediments around the world. Mm. And this so, yeah, the they're going to decide. <laughs> Pretty this much. But oh I know God. they're like, oh, we're going to mm-hmm. see like, you know, we should be able to tell that this, this will be in the rock record millions of years from now. And I'm like, millions of years from now. <laughs> the whole Mm-mm. idea of the Anthropocene is that like, <laughs> shit's apocalyptic, but. Anyways, so in the, in the next cu- couple of years, the International Commission of Stratigraphy is going to decide whether or not we have moved on from the Holocene and into the Anthropocene. Yeah, so this debate around the Anthropocene, <laughs> I really was about to call it the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene um, is around the fact that humans have basically long been having an effect on the earth from the start of farming and pastoralism the Industrial Revolution, and on and on and on. And so, as we mentioned in our last episode, when we talked about scientific decisions, most of them, in fact, many of them, or all of them, if you (laughs) would like to go that far, are actually well-justified, arbitrary choices. So, I have been more privy to debates around the Anthropocene starting in 1492. So, I took, I TA'd for a course about climate change, the Anthropocene, um, and I was the only Black person there. Um, And so having to do a lot of talk about, like, when people believe the Industrial Revolution was the start of when, of capitalism and things like that, and and being capitalism, being the origin story of everything being messed up, and me being like, okay, but in order for people to even know about machines and do machines, like slavery had to happen. And mm-hmm. so we had a lots of back and forth about the actual start of the Anthropocene. Um, and, you know, so some say it's in 1492, which is the year that Columbus opened, quote unquote, the portal for colonization of the Americas. But there are anthropologists and other social scientists who want to make it start at the Industrial Revolution because that's when we really started polluting things. But a lot, mm. of, a lot of people know that growing cotton is not good for good for the environment. So anyway, rolls eyes. Um, <laughs> yeah, the issue that I take with this framing really is that it does not take into account the ways that indigenous and black genocide has also altered the ways that we interact with the earth. Uh, and we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I feel like with archaeologists and geologists, they're thinking in these huge spans of time. I mean, archaeologists, mm-hmm. they're kind of on like two ends of the spectrum. Geologists are obviously thinking in millions of years. Archaeologists may be thinking about like a certain time period, but they're thinking about these like super large spans of time that that cultural anthropologists are definitely not thinking about yeah we're not so mm-hmm. we don't have that we don't have that range um. no we do not. 
we try. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so the Anthropocene, I think, is used quite differently in the social sciences and humanities. And Anthropocene, it's kind of shorthand for this process by which, you know, we're bringing about the end of life as we know it, mm. if not life altogether, mm-hmm. right? And so when you na- when we name something, you know, we kind of ask what's what's its critical potential? By naming the Anthropocene, what does it allow us to mm. do, say, and think? And so for us, I think the Anthropocene, it tends to prompt questions more about the end of civilization, thinking about the human, the non-human, the more than human, the less than human, the post-human, and also nature. But then there's some critics who are like, well, the Anthropocene, it overemphasizes the human, we're still centering humans. Maybe we should think about the Capitalocene, you know, which centers more like imperialism and capitalist accumulation as the main driver of environmental loss. Mm. Or others suggest the Plantationocene, you know, to kind of mark how the plantation economy created these conditions of possibility for today's economy, like, you know, and today's economy and environments and social relations. But the thing about like that Plantationocene work, it doesn't really engage with Black Studies' long history of thinking with the plantation and colonization. So it's interesting. It is. It's, it's just, I mean, I always find it interesting when anthropology likes to pretend that other bodies of knowledge doesn't exist and do do work, um, like mm-hmm. anthropological, quote unquote, work. So, yeah, I find that to be very interesting, too. Yeah. And I really like what you said about the critical potential of things, like what in thinking through like the Anthropocene, what does it allow us to say, what does it allow us to do, what does it allow us to think? And I think that really is taken up well in what we decided to read for this week. Like, yeah. um, and so. Excellent. Uh, Great transition. Yeah. yeah. Boom. <laughs> Look uh, at that. We're flying through this. <laughs> All right. So, Brendan, what are we reading today? Today um, and forever, it seems you can always come back to this piece and read something new. We are mm-hmm. reading Blackness and the Pitfalls of, the, of Anthropocene Ethics by Axel Carrera. And Axel Carrera is an assistant professor of philosophy in African-American studies at Wesleyan University. Her areas of specialization are in 20th century continental philosophy, the critical philosophy of race, contemporary critical theories, and the environmental humanities. She is currently working on her first book project, uh, tentatively titled (laughs) The Climate of Race, Blackness and the Pitfalls of Anthropocene Ethics, in which she assesses the ethical and political shortcomings of, ooh, of (laughs) Anthropocene, um discourses on matters of race yes y'all um i'm reading from my notes and sometimes i can write things and not know what they say so well we just we just snatched that off of her bio (laughs) Um, (laughs) i'm gonna say that i think it's dope that she's in philosophy i actually don't know any black philosophy phd students or black philosophers. Well, now I do because I know Axel Carrera and that might be because I'm not in that discipline and I don't read a lot of philosophy, but um, yeah, go sis. Yes, go sis. I only know. So we have a professor, a black philosophy professor at our institution and we probably should should put that out. (laughs) Um, We have a black (laughs) philosophy professor at our institution 
um, who, and he's a really nice man. And then um, I know someone that I met through our, um, our colleague, Chloe. She's a black philosopher. Hey, Chloe. Hey, girl. Um, And um, I know one, a black trans woman who is a philosopher. And I'm sure that she is among the few of black uh, trans women who are out here doing philosophy work. Uh, Her name is Naomi Simmons Thorne. And she's amazing. Um, Follow her on Twitter. Like, really, everything she says, yeah. I'm like, you are really breaking open the ways that I think about the world. Um, but, yeah, there's, like, so few of us. I love that. Yeah, I mean, you don't. So few of us. You tend to find more more of us in, you know, sociology. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm talking about the social sciences and humanities specifically, but in English, doing more, like, literary criticism mm-hmm. and cultural studies and know the social sciences but when we're thinking about humanity it's definitely more along the lines of like English or French or things like that I doing philosophy is like a another level of thinking that I (laughs) but I had a philosopher tell me he was a black man he was like oh the work that you're doing sounds more like philosophy than anthropology and I was like Hmm. you know in her title you know she's talking about Anthropocene ethics. And I think that academics, they often say, you know, the politics mm-hmm. of when in our in our intro, we were talking about the politics of respectability. Um, or they'll say like an ethics of X or the aesthetics of Black Lives Matter or something like that. And, you know, sometimes it can kind of just seem like this is a this is like a scholarly way of making things sound more, I don't know, more esoteric or something, but it does have a meaning if it's used mm-hmm. correctly. So the political, for example, it, it refers to what can and cannot be done or what's made possible or impossible by a particular state of affairs. So, and that's often determined by power. So you can say something like the politics of representation, what, you know, what does that mean? And then ethics refers to what ought to be done. Like how should we live among each other? It's almost, it's almost like a, it's about like imagination and, and, mm. and the imaginary and like working towards something, I think. I, I mean, it's what you would say is like poesis. So and poesis is like creation. Um, mm. So it's like creating, a, you know, a different, better, more just moral or ethical world. But that's just like a shorthand I use to remember those things. Like, how, you, how would you explain it? say that the way that you explained it is like really useful framing for me um I think the only thing that I would add to that is when I think about the political I think about it implying a sense of agency versus oppression and some people like to think of it as like a zero-sum game where either you're an agent or either you're oppressed and Mm -hmm. that thinking works sometimes and sometimes it falls apart but um essentially also like thinking about this in philosophy period so or philosophy thinking right is a lot of philosophers look at the enlightenment period and they point to that as a period of time in which um an understanding right this kind of western liberal understanding of what is possible or or impossible came about through the language of human rights Mm. which are conveyed through laws and we all know that the legal system definitely does not dictate what is possible or impossible Mm -hmm. Uh, but our modern discourse around law and legal systems is limited because of like the ways that we've been conceptualizing it since the enlightenment period and so 
I like to think about this um, in my own work and around activism and thinking about how like black women especially use their agency mm-hmm. to fight against different forms of oppression that may actually be legal. And right. so, right, like this difference that people are kind of saying, and even when we say Black Lives Matter, a lot of times they're thinking about how to change different laws, but that might not necessarily change the ways in which, you know, the world works, right? Mm-hmm. Even if the laws are changed, what's possible and impossible might still be operating under a certain type of like social order. Right. Um, yeah. So I also want to like draw attention to when we think about the political and um different levels of power to the distinction from the legal and also Mm -hmm. to highlight like how that constrains what is possible. But I think Carrera asked us to think about what is possible in the age of the Anthropocene through the language of ethics, which takes the political, the legal and the social into account to determine what is quote unquote right. Right. (laughs) I didn't mean to like echo you. I was just like, yes, that is what you are saying. So in this essay, Axel Carrera, she critiques the way that scholars of the Anthropocene ignore or elide these past and current imperial injustices and are kind of unable to imagine futures that don't just spell the end of capitalism, but also Black suffering or the disposability Mm. of Black life. And I think that this essay, it really highlights what what you said in, in a previous episode that like Blackness fractures the meaning of things. I still think that was so beautifully phrased. (laughs) Um, So in this essay, you know, we really see how Blackness ruptures notions like ethics and relationality and humanity, because her question is like, how wild is it that you can talk about this global crisis, a crisis that the entire world is facing, and still avoid questions of race? Like, what? But... (laughs) It's like while these mostly white scholars are imagining a new world after the apocalypse, they really fail to grapple with the questions of racism and anti-blackness and they focus on the human, but then they're like, well, we're not going to talk about who is excluded from the realm of the human, right? It's like Mm -hmm. without this, there's no ethical transformation after the end of the world in this like post-apocalyptic world, the world just stays the same for us. But then, you know, as I was reading, I was thinking about like a question I might have, not that I might have, that I do have. (laughs) (laughs) We often discuss racial capitalism. And so if we kind of, if we concede that capitalism and racism are intertwined and that, you know, the creation of the black and black death are like preconditions for capitalism. So they, these things are required for capitalism to have been created and to continue into the present and the future, wouldn't the destruction of capitalism kind of spell the end of racism? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great question. I'm going to clarify for our listeners because I too was confused um, at the beginning of grad school. And I was like, why do people (laughs) keep talking about the black, black. and yeah. like what is <laughs> what is the black um and yeah so just to clarify for you all uh when we say the black uh, we're not pointing to any individual black person like yes. hey that you know black person over there it's not that necessarily we're talking about a social category that black people can occupy yeah. um but we'll also get to like a deeper explanation of that later thanks for that brendan yeah yeah uh, to answer your question 
I would say not necessarily, um, especially when we consider like how stratified life is in capitalism. And so Mm. a racist or white supremacist apocalyptic fantasy is one in which black folks are killed off first or the good slash smart slash worthy ones survive. Mm. Right. Um, And so the afterworld that is imagined in some imaginations of the um, Anthropocene would in effect be a white supremacist fantasy in which the black as a social category is disappeared, Mm -hmm. but racism could still exist even when black people are gone. So if we don't have a social category or people who look like us who can fill that social category of the black in order to Mm. like determine who would be white, you still have to kind of determine who's going to fall at the bottom of a social hierarchy. And so if we don't deal with, which is why I think it's important to think about like, and career points us to thinking not just around racism, but anti-blackness in particular as, Mm -hmm. as something that, mobilizes this this Anthropocene um, characterization because, yeah, we can get rid of racism, right? Which means probably Mm -hmm. extinguishing groups of people, but anti-Blackness as a way of thinking and way of forming societies probably would still exist. Right. Definitely. I have a lot of things going through my head. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the category of Black is something that has shifted so much just as whiteness has. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think about who was considered, who was considered black in, I don't know, if we think about Europe and we think about the Irish, they were often used to define a certain kind of whiteness, even though it wasn't named that at the time, a certain kind of whiteness um, in England or in Great Britain. And so this is a, this is like a shifting category, but one in which we occupy I don't know where I was going with that, but I did want to say that it did like your, your explanation also made me think of um, the handmaid's tale. (laughs) Mm, Oh Lord. And so y'all don't let the TV show fool you in the book. All of the blacks were just like all the blacks, (laughs) all of the black people were shipped off to the colonies and they died there cleaning up the toxic waste. So even in that situation in in a completely white society, um, they still managed to find a hierarchy or develop a hierarchy through which some people are worthy and others are not. So yeah, I think the way that you explained that was, was really helpful. Yeah. And and even, and so I think what's interesting about that is that like as a category, right, the black is always going to be the subhuman, non-human at the bottom kind of thing. And also is a referent for the, the experiences of black people. Um, and so it's just like, even because even yeah. when you mentioned the Irish example, right, it's like, it's not even really the, the Irish themselves and, and how, you know, the, the horrible depictions of them. Mm-hmm. And then it was like them calling them niggers. Right. So it's yeah. like, even then it's not even really you, it's always this reference to this like black person, which is why, like we hold on to the category of the black and we say that it like shifts over time. But yes. I know there are some people who are going to be listening to this and be like, Oh no. So no, no, I didn't, no, didn't want to <laughs> say that like, that's exactly what I was looking for that. Like the black mm-hmm. is a referent. I was, mm-hmm. that's what I was trying to get to, but couldn't quite put the words together, but also let us all agree, acknowledge, recognize that Irish people have been assumed under, under whiteness. They're white now. Y'all don't experience racism. Okay. <laughs> and 
and still I still I oop um and so <laughs> that's like my new favorite meme if you don't still know I our ancestor, and I oop uh and still I oop you know our ancestor Maya Angelou before she left this earth she let us know and still I oop um and so you just <laughs> that's such a bad joke <laughs> I'm going to leave it, though. Leave leave it, it. please. Um, Um. Yes. So where were we? We're talking about the apocalypse. All right. Yes. And how white people are, how they kind of like want the apocalypse because for them, they're like, it'll probably be fine for us, but it'll mean that we'll live in a more comfortable society. So for them, this idea of the apocalypse can be emancipatory. I don't even know why I'm using that word with the white folks. But anyways. I think that what I mean by that is it's given them the space to think about new ways of being in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I read um, Staying with the Trouble by Donna Haraway. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and she talks about living and dying well in the Anthropocene. And so I, when I was rereading this essay um, by XL Carrera, I was reading it in relation to that book, which is like super indebted to indigenous epistemologies Mm -hmm. And and epistemologies are like knowledge systems or the way that we understand the world. Um, And so Donna Haraway saying like, you know, we shouldn't be discouraged by this impossibility of creating a future without all of these troubles. You know, instead we should think about what it looks like to be truly present and practice living and dying well now in the present by making kin with the living and non-living. And I'm like, all right, this all sounds great. But then you're like, hang on this form of Anthropocene ethics, it like really indulges this white propensity to imagine mm-hmm. a future where all life is equal while refusing to address anti-blackness and settler colonialism. And it assumes mm-hmm. that like all of our lives matter in the same way right now. And that anti-blackness and settler colonialism won't be reproduced in these futures. And it, it especially overlooks the fact that Black and especially Indigenous people are already living in the ruins of, of like post the the apocalypse. We're living in the po- this post apocalyptic world already. I have like, felt the disaster. <laughs> yes, like hello transatlantic slave trade, enslavement, colonization, genocide, continued cultural genocide, and actual genocide. It's like this. This is the this we've had. We've experienced the end of the world. So why why haven't you acknowledged that? So. She's just like, all humans, we should stop imagining a future without trouble and instead live in the present. But like the humans that can do that, they're like curiously unraced, you know? There's a presumed Mm -hmm. whiteness to who can live and die well in the present. So this concept, it really like, her idea of like making kin and all of this and staying with the trouble, it really kind of serves to exclude a large majority of the world, like the post-colonial subject and people subject to anti-blackness. So it's like- when Axel Carrera was like, there's no end to anti-Blackness, just recalibration, or there won't be one, there will just be a recalibration. I was like, whew, snaps. <laughs> snaps, stomps, claps, <laughs> prayer hands. Like, I, you know, making kin is such an obviously, like, Indigenous and Black practice. Mm-hmm. So I really hope, I haven't read it, but I really hope that um, she gets credit too to whom it's due um but moving forward Carrera (laughs) (laughs) argues 
right? That this view of the world um, in which we think about this, you know, apocalyptic view of the world and this human where everyone is on the same level mm-hmm. is ahistorical and apolitical, like as you said so yes. well. I, these fantasies are about this like fresh start, which I would add, you know, as a church girl, a former <laughs> church girl, you know, ring of a certain kind of born again Christian outlook on the world mm. where it's like, you know, this is a reset for all of our previous sins um, and we can now be born again new in this new world and we can start over and you know that nigger that I've hated my whole life um, now all of a sudden we got to survive together with with the zombies from the toxic waste I don't know so it Joy James talks a lot about this in um, when she talks about sci-fi values and Mm -hmm. kind of the erasure of the black um, in an article and Carrera really points to this kind of preservation uh, of life, which she calls a vitality, like this hyper vitality that supposes or, you know, really is based upon this belief that we are all mutually dependent upon each other. Mm. And it's like this, like, we're all in this together kind of ethos that is really and simply and truly not true. Um, (laughs) Capitalism, (laughs) right? Like, that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. Capitalism and like other processes of marginalization ensure that those on the margins will bear the brunt of this ecological, social, and political disaster. And right? as we see, talk about that. Yeah. Like, as we have seen, as we see now with the, you know, hurricane and all of that. So, Carrera yeah. um, and me, because I agree with her absolutely. <laughs> um, I we, like we take up a real issue with this kind of hyper ethics, is mm-hmm. what she calls it, that erases histories of violation and domination. And you know, like I was reading this, and in, in my notes on the side of the page, it's like, how can I look forward to a new world of possibility when the water I already drink is not safe, right, or clean? And you know, exactly. and, and in my neighborhood now where I live, right, there's no grocery stores really nearby you know it's basically a food desert Mm -hmm. um and so what really and truly about this quote-unquote pre-apocalyptic life do i want to preserve like Mm. when we talk about this vitality and this this hyper ethics around living what she's saying is that like especially in anthropocene circles it's like oh we need to revert to how things used to be or revert to how things were or we need to try to Mm -hmm. preserve the before, before there is an after. And it's like, but for Black people, why would that be the desire? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's such a romanticization of some pastoral past or something, you know? It's, and it's mm-hmm. always a pastoral one, you know? It's like, oh, life was just so much better when everybody just lived on farms and made, you know, right. grew their own food and all of this. And it was like, who lived on farms? Whose land are those farms on? Hmm. Right. Hmm. <laughs> Right. Like that's the whole thing about the settler colonialism just being transferred over. It's like people want to start over, but it's like you want to start over on land that you stole. Like, Mm. snaps for Brendan. How are you going to, how are you going to, how do you want to start over on land that you stole? Like where, where is going to be the reset button for that? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's like this mandate of change that's implicit in the climate change movement and in certain circles in the Anthropocene movement that there is a before that black and indigenous people want to return to that also maintains white cis hetero capitalists like hegemonic power. Right. So there's a before mm-hmm. that allows us to be, you know, whoever we were before colonization 
that also allows white people to still be at the top. Yeah, that's a no for me. It's a no. It's a no. It's a no, no. It's a no, no. Um, Is it not wild to you that like people are talking about making kin with non-humans and they're thinking about reconfiguring planetary alliances, but it's like, y'all can't even imagine inviting black scholars to a panel unless it's about diversity and inclusion. And still, I I just. Hello. (laughs) Sorry, what? Y'all can make kin with rocks but you can't make kin with black folk like yes hmm. they can they can burn that sage <laughs> on that altar and practice hoodoo my my best friend and destiny and I were talking about white practitioners of hoodoo mm. and you know grow your own food in your backyard but you literally a black person walk past you on the street and you got to figure out what you're going to do. Or I guess in a white liberal sense, you got to walk up to them and introduce yourself and say that you're not one of those bad white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's like this, this is imagination that's low key delusion. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's so wild. much, so much of the thinking about the Anthropocene, it, it demands a transformation in how we relate to, to the earth and to the non-human, but not to blackness or the mm-hmm. black, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, I, so Carrera does this really close reading of Rosie Bredotti's work. And then like, whew, Carrera like brings it home when she says, mm-hmm. quote, extinction should not be the only in- impetus to reconfigure human subjectivity. Like, End preach. Quote. So she really highlights that this is, that it's only when white bodies and lives are threatened that there's a motivation to reconfigure what it means to be human, but not when black people are saying, Hey, we are excluded from the category of human. And, you know, I think Brendan kind of explained this with with the concept of the black. Like if you're like, well, of course I'm human just because I'm black doesn't mean I'm human. I'm not human. It's, you know, we're talking about the subject of the human Mm -hmm. or the genre of the human. So, you know, you were talking about the enlightenment before And so while Enlightenment thinkers were thinking about rights and human rights, part of thinking about what human rights are is deciding what it means to be human. And Mm. so as they were creating this category, they were excluding Black and Indigenous people from the genre of of the human. So that's why you had this hierarchy where at the top is man, and man is white, male, rational, civilized, and then the savage and the barbarian. And then they kind of slotted uh, African uh, and brown people and indigenous folks into these categories based on, again, arbitrary ideas of civilization and progress. Right, right. And it's basically like when you're, as you're saying, Alyssa, like when you have to decide about human rights, you need to decide, first of all, in order for rights to be a thing, right, there has to be a category of people who have them and a category of people who don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're trying to figure out, okay, who gets these rights and who doesn't sometimes the citizen stands in for the human um and that's like a whole nother set of conversations i think if we want to talk about citizenship slash what it means to be undocumented and the ways Mm -hmm. that that is now wielded in this like human non-human yeah um configuration but i also want to like highlight here that the black slash the slave um, is at the bottom of the racial hierarchy so that it can serve as a category that is seen as like non-human and 
this word called fungible, which means when something is fungible, you basically can do whatever you want with it. It's it kind can of be like, exchanged for anything else. Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah, it can be exchanged for anything else. It's kind of like a thing that you possess that you can exchange for something for whatever kind of value you want or kind of just make it in, in your imagination can make it into something else. So, money, so think- money is something that would that would be considered fungible, right? Like yes. it's this piece of paper, but you can, it has a particular, uh, there's an understanding behind this piece of paper and you can exchange it for something like a TV or bottles of water. Or bottles of wine if you're living in the <laughs> quarantine if you're living, if you're living I just looked in quarantine at my world. water filter and I was like, <laughs> or water. <laughs> um. But yeah, so, and when we think about the category of the Black or the slave, right, this, the people who can fill that category's purpose is to fulfill the needs of a dominating class. I I wanted to add that, like, it's very um, important to think about this as, like, Black feminist thinkers, we're not, we're not continuing this, this, like, Cartesian binary of, Mm -hmm. for there to be a human, there has to be a non-human, like, we're trying to break that apart and move completely away from that so that idea that there's like i want to use the word dialectic but it's like that's that not you know um, can you tell that we're nerds kind of yes thing? exactly <laughs> um so thinking in this very binary way male female citizen non-citizen all of these things this comes out of long history of like the white western philosophical paradigm essentially which is just like we think we have to think about things in binaries and that is not the way the majority of the world thinks, but it's something that we have now had to be socialized into. And so I think a lot of black feminist thinkers are like trying to think outside of these binaries and beyond binaries and imagining what a world like that looks like. Yes, um, absolutely. And Carrera does that work too uh, through her like philosophical, philosophical intervention. Yeah where she calls us to re- reimagine new worlds that tackle the social injustices of the current one. And so she joins, I'm putting her in the circle. Forgive me if you do not see yourself in, in the same circle <laughs> as people. But when I read this, all I kept thinking about was um, other Black feminist thinkers like J.T. Rohn, um, Alexis Pauline Gums, and others who conceptualize a new world through Black people's unique way of surviving in this one. Um, So Roan wrote in kind of this like short article where he talks about Black people um, give expression to other formulations for how to build connections, how to configure social worlds according to unsanctioned rubrics that do not adhere in the futures outlined by settler futurity. A relay between the equally destructive fantasies of permanency and total apocalypse so basically um mm. and the reason why i paused like that was like oh i should i i need to break this down because like, if you're not <laughs> me you're like what what does this mean right so basically ron is saying that black people we already know how to make connections with each other and with mm-hmm. the world the non-human the post-human etc with the world around us we have that ancestral knowledge right. and we know how to configure social worlds and right, build worlds that meet metrics that aren't legal, quote unquote, right? That meet metrics that aren't necessarily approved of by what might be, you know, the powers that be may say, right? And that we 
are not necessarily attached to these kind of imagined futures of settler futurity, which basically, you know, settler colonialism kind of goes back and forth between a world that will always be what it is, right? We'll always be in this capitalist rut where people always be at the bottom and the rich will only get richer. Right. And or this other thing, which is like total apocalypse. And if white people don't got it, we all don't got it kind of thing. And it's like black vitality, black living. We break that open. Right. We actually express and I'm going to paraphrase him and say, like, we express the possibilities against this frame. Right. And Mm -hmm. so these frames of what he calls catastrophic um, anti-black circumstances. And so. Roan also makes a reference to wake work, which is something that Christina Sharp develops and which is about the ways that we are, you know, when we talk about people being woke, right? Your, mm-hmm. your eyes are open to the world, but wake work is thinking about our eyes and our hearts being open to the world and also being able to care for each other through that. So pushing past this capitalist white supremacist understanding of how we relate to each other to think getting back to ancestral or even present forms of black care and practice. Um, and like, we've been doing that, right? We've been imagining new worlds, right? We've been imagining new ways to have family. We've been imagining um, ways of being that do not perpetuate oppression against other people. Yeah. We just got to lean more into it because mm-hmm. believe it or not, y'all, this world is falling apart. Like, believe it or not, it's falling yeah, apart. It is. <laughs> um, yeah. When you were talking about settler colonial studies um, or, or settler colonialism, I was thinking about our critical indigenous studies class that we, you know, we were both in that class. What was it oh, last I year? That. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Our professor was fan. She, she is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> But I think another way that, you know, we can talk about the way that Blackness ruptures these, these binaries or these, um, these kind of like constructions and concepts is in settler colonialism. So in settler colonial studies, you know, people are often, they're thinking about the settler and the indigenous. And one of the questions that I asked of our professor and that I think you were also thinking about is just like, well, where do you... African-Americans fit in in that situation in the United States. And I I wasn't as familiar with Afro-pessimism. We're not going to get into that today, y'all. It's coming. Yeah, but clearly (laughs) I was, you know, I was kind of gesturing toward that idea that that Black people in in the United States, they don't fit into either category. And in that case, like, how, how how do you reconcile their existence, right? And... You know, and as a result of the, those kinds of questions, she, you know, our professor, she kind of revamped her entire settler colonialism course in the fall after that, after that class. And so, you know, she was reading uh, Tiffany King and, mm-hmm. you know, they, they read all of these like great texts where people are really thinking about blackness, indigeneity and the settler right and I think I have I'm I'm glad that we could be there to do that (laughs) yeah that my final paper was thinking about that but thinking about this troubled category or this troubled word I'm gonna throw it out there solidarity Mm. um and thinking about for me, what I read in, in some of the texts that we, and I think you pointed out in class, like one text in particular where it was like the indigenous folks were using hip hop or something as like a revolutionary 
way yeah. to talk about their their oppression, but then it was like they actually treat treated black people on the island um terribly, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just like even within these kind of even within these different spaces where people are resisting colonization, right? The the black, right? The the category that black people can inher- inhabit, right? Still is operational and like anti-blackness is still present. Yeah. And so the question around, at least for a lot of it for me was like, how do we find quote unquote solidarity with different groups of people that doesn't rely on like a denigration or, you know, of black people or like just a appropriation of our radical theories without really wanting to invite us in. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think Carrera helps us with that. She's like, mm-hmm. all right, we need to imagine new worlds. Like that is, that is it. So if black death is the precondition of democracy, then we have to demand transformation, not reformation. Like there's no, there's no reform to a system that is predicated on our death and destruction. We need to imagine and actualize a world where we, you know, where we demand these things and, you know, a world that, I think that we need to think about a world that renders these systems like obsolete. So I heard Hortense Spiller speak. Oh yes, Hortense Spillers. Um, <laughs> you can listen to us talk about her text, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe in a previous episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but she, she did a talk a few weeks back and she said that the end is not the end. So the end means making space for new worlds. And you know, people often say that the past is present, but for her, she was like, the future is always present because we are continually trying to create it. Wow. And it just shows that Black feminist futurity is a different kind of temporality compared to white Anthropocenean thinking. I got it. The yeah, Anthropocenean. It, you, it rolled <laughs> off the tongue too. I was like, yeah. yes. I don't know why yes. I drew attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that, you know, Black feminist thinkers, you know, we commit to a different ethical now rather than than a better, more just future, right? So, and then that future will come. It's got to. It's got to. Um, so I think that just like brings us to this better, this different ethical now. Like, let's talk about yeah. this now. So like we're talking about, so our our final segment, our favorite segment, like what? In the world. What? What? In the world. What in the world? So our what in the world is the world. Literally. (laughs) It's the world world today. Um, Yo. Okay. As I have said before, um, (laughs) the world is basura and fuego. Like we might, and actually uh, parts of the world are on fire right now. Um, And you know, back then I was being a little sarcastic, trying, but it's like, oh no, like, woo shit, like we here, like this is it. Um, the world is on fire and we're, so today we're gonna talk about global warming, these rising sea temperatures that are bringing sharks to New York. Um, so watch out and uh, <laughs> watch out. And the whole just dumpster fire that comes with everything that's going on. Yeah, it's just like, the fuego really is here in all of these different ways. And one of them was like in a, in a New York times article that they, that they published last week, it was an interactive piece 
And they were demonstrating the connection between redlining in U.S. cities and global warming and, you know, race and the death of black people, of course. Mm -hmm. So I had to, you know, learn more about redlining and what that is because I sit on my Canadian. I just, you know what? have a different genealogy and that I always feel bad that I don't know these things. And then I'm like, I come from no. a different genealogy. <laughs> Literally. I'm glad so. that you, this is not part of your lived experience. Oh, so um, <laughs> that's what I'm telling Gilead escape. Plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but redlining for, for those who aren't familiar with it, this is a practice that started in the 1930s in Baltimore, in Baltimore, um, where neighborhoods would be raided to help mortgage lenders to decide like which areas were risky inve- investments. So, of course, racism for 500 Alex, um, <laughs> the neighborhoods that were considered hazardous. And that was literally the word that they used. It was, quote, hazardous. Um, they were mostly populated by black and immigrant people. So. This, di- this kind of diverted a lot of investment away from these neighborhoods. And so what the New York Times did was they overlaid the red line areas with surface temperatures today. And they found that these former redlined areas are hotter than other places in the same city. So it's mostly because they have like fewer trees and more pavement. Mm. And... So it's important to think, oh, yeah, okay, well, surface temperature, that's probably, you know, that's not that big of a deal. It's fine. But actually, it's really important to note that extreme heat kills more Americans than any other weather-related disaster. So, yeah. So that's pretty crazy. And then I read this tweet that was like, that was like, we shouldn't think about this year as the hottest year in in 100 years. We should think about it as the coolest year for the next hundred years. So if already you're seeing these discrepancies where neighborhoods of black and brown people are 12 degrees hotter than white neighborhoods, hmm, what's that going to look like in 50 years? Yeah, so in some cases, I think uh, it was Portland. Portland has like the highest discrepancy and I think it was around Mm. 12 12 or 13 degrees difference, which Mm. is, okay. (laughs) That's literally a completely different day, like 80 degrees versus 92. Yeah, exactly. That's 70 versus like 83. Like, yo, (laughs) that is truly an example of environmental racism. And I don't know if y'all knew about this before. So what, what, um, how would you explain environmental racism? Because, you know, people are probably like... (laughs) another kind of racism like i'm still i'm still on racial capitalism like (laughs) yo okay yes so i mean y'all as y'all know racism manifests in all these different ways it's not just i don't like somebody because they look a certain way right and so environmental racism refers to the ways that minority quote-unquote neighborhoods are disproportionately burdened with environmental hazards so this is Neighborhoods that are built on top of old toxic waste sites or might be next to a sewage plant or Mm -hmm. a landfill or power stations. And so it's a form of systemic racism that black communities especially face at high levels where we have high levels of pollution um, and toxicity. A lot of these neighborhoods, right, they tell you, do not drink the water. Yeah. And it's not it's not just by chance. Like it's not by chance that people who contribute the least to climate change and to pollution Mm -hmm. are the ones that are the most affected by it. And that is, 
something that you can see within the US, you can see that globally around the world. So people in the global south, people in the Pacific, people who live on islands are deeply, deeply affected by climate change. Deeply. And they contribute the least to it. So in the class that I TA for, we read articles and um, about Pacific Islanders who contribute like less than 0.001% of carbon emissions, right? Because they're tiny islands, maybe five miles across. Mm -hmm. um, but the rising sea levels are actually flooding their homes and like flooding their places. And they're called mm -hmm. quote unquote climate refugees. Yeah. And it's like, these are people who have to change their entire ways of life because those of us who live in the West world, right? you know, have done, I mean, different, different levels of environmental harm, but like, yeah. you know, we are complicit in, in harms of these indigenous peoples and they're trying to relocate. And there are places like mm -hmm. it's difficult for them to relocate. Um, New Zealand has a bunch of, a bunch of quote unquote climate refugees from yeah. the area. Yeah. And I mean, um, even I, you can see it in the Caribbean as well, mm -hmm. with the rising sea temperatures, it means that pe a lot of people who live on the coast, who live in coastal regions in general, like this is also the case in Florida, people are losing their livelihoods as a result mm -hmm. of this because sea temperature goes up, fish move away, coral reefs die. And mm -hmm. it's all just like, it's all just a cycle where black death just becomes the byproduct of mostly white people living their best lives. Right. Right. Of like modernization and yeah. um, pro quote unquote progress. Yeah, all oh, the little fishies. I think about Nemo. <laughs> I don't know. You said reason that made me think about Nemo, and you know. Yeah, so we, I mean, we went kind of like around. I mean, you were talking about like toxic yeah. waste and sewage works, and you know. Yeah, toxic waste. So there's actually a term for toxic waste sites that have been identified by the Environmental Protection agency um as super quote-unquote super fun sites which are sites that are like national priority sites for the levels of toxicity they have and so super fund is the colloquial name for the comprehensive environmental response compensation and liability act which was Oof, passed mouthful. in <laughs> yeah mouthful but hopefully you know it stands up to it being comprehensive but uh Anyway, uh, passed in 1980 after hazardous waste was um, discovered to be disposed of in poor neighborhoods around the country. And so the Superfund was basically Congress giving the EPA money to clean up these sites. And so they have developed like plans for these sites. There's over 1,800 of them. Um, and they have the comprehensive plans for cleanup. Um, and that's, it's definitely long-term. So, I mean, one of the, so the, the thing that I find wild about this and also shout out to Marissa Solomon. Uh, she was yes. one who gave me the, she, I, I kind of consulted her about this episode and she was like, super fun sites. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, okay. So thank you. Uh, thank she's you, a, thank she's you. a new professor at, uh, at Barnard. So shout out to her. I'll be working with her as part of the black Atlantic ecologies working group. Yeah. <laughs> 
Very exciting stuff. Okay, slight, <laughs> slight flex on us real quick. You always say that I'm flexing. <laughs> I'm just providing information. No, I'm just saying flex. I mean, you might as well. If you're not full of yourself, who will be like, <laughs> um, I believe in so, it. So, yeah, I mean, so she was the one who was like, prisons are built over Superfund sites. Mm. So they're like making money off of enslaved prison labor and then they're also making money from the site cleanup like huh huh on top of just you know attempting to continue the disposal of people Mm -hmm. uh it's you know this shit is ridiculous um so yeah like where i'm at now in baltimore city has two super fun sites mm. um one is a landfill and the other is like a, a waste disposal site there are five in the county and the first so shout out to you know all the listeners in south carolina um <laughs> if you're from south carolina like me uh, i was Surprised, but not surprised to find out that the first major settlement, so the first use of the Superfund was actually given to a South Carolina waste disposal plant off of Bluff Road. So if you've ever driven by Bluff Road and been like, oh, this smell funny, um, mm. that might be part of the <laughs> that reason. <is> what? <laughs> um, and this was done in 1982. And I guess my other little funny but not funny joke is that my home state is always leading the way in the wrong things. Like first, sla- first the slavery sh- shit, and now this. Like South Carolina, we gotta do better. But I, as I was doing research on Superfund and like really trying to learn more about it, shortly after the person who's currently um, president became president mm. <laughs> um, in 2017. The Superfund Task Force, and if you can look them up, you will not be surprised by this once you see what they look like, set out a new initiative that aims to revitalize and redevelop these toxic waste sites and also encourage private investment. Mm. So um, kind of, you know, similar things of what's been happening with prisons where, you know, they converted themselves and or they were converted from these government entities into these private entities. Now we see an expansion of capitalism by turning these revitalization projects into private investments. And Mm -hmm. we know that means they're going to gentrify these areas. Um, And so essentially like all of this environmental toxicity and, you know, revitalization, revitalization, et cetera, is going to lead marginalized and poor people to a slower death. Um, And so Rob Nixon is a theorist who coined the terms slow violence and slow death to describe the disproportionate impact environmental racism has on poor people. So it's not the the quick death, right, of, you know, racism that might be a police violence, right? It's, It's being in these toxic environments your entire life and dying slowly mm-hmm. dying earlier so you know the black um life expectancy rate is much shorter than yeah. it is for like white people or other non-black people and so the ways that all of these things accumulate over time um to kill us slowly is is what that article talks about mm-hmm. and we'll we'll link it for y'all if you're interested yeah and exactly and i mean i think that that is definitely something this this slow death and this slow violence is something that we definitely saw with Flint mm-hmm. in Michigan with their lead contaminated water for six years. 
And so part of the reason that we are like, this is a good time to do this episode is they actually just reached a financial settlement for the residents of Flint. Right. But then it's like, okay, the question remains, is the water clean though? Like, have you cleaned the water? (laughs) No. And, And like, even if the government came to you and said, okay, we've cleaned the water. Like, sorry, here's some money, but the water's clean. Would you trust it? I wouldn't trust it. I'd be like, how could you trust any mm-hmm. institution again? You just can't. And so, I mean, it really brings home this tweet that Trey, at Trey from the block on Twitter, uh, what she wrote, she said, are you familiar with urban farming? Do you know how to naturally purify your water? How strong are your first aid skills? Can mm-hmm. you navigate your environment without a phone? This country will starve you and pollute your resources before it shoots you at close range, end quote. So, I mean, really, she's talking about the ways that people, the country, institutions are enacting these slow violences mm-hmm. and slow deaths on Black people. And so what, what is it that we are doing to counteract and escape that and, you know, build our own communities? So she, you know, she also goes on to talk about, like, the ways that people are very quick to romanticize taking up arms. And mm-hmm. she, he does, she also is like, I'm not trying to minimize the black radical tradition or the black Panther party and, and like the work that they've done. But after the revolution, what are you going to do if you can't grow your own food? And I think that Flint also shows that like guns sure shit didn't help anybody get clean water. So these are like aspects of, of survival. Right. I mean, maybe if they pulled up on the right person, but and asked for <laughs> clean water, maybe that would have changed some things. But you do some um, John Q stuff. Are you recommending? You know, <laughs> no. Oh my, oh my gosh. No, not absolutely not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would say that, like, speaking <laughs> of the Black Panther Party and thinking about arming folks. Arming men in particular, right? Because that's the images that we have and are Mm -hmm. shown is that we need to arm men. And it's like when we think about Black people and violence in Black communities, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Arming Mm -hmm. arming men, is that going to solve the problem of protecting women in our own communities? Um, And so I believe that we should, we should exercise our second amendment rights but it's not revolutionary when those same weapons are used against black women especially black trans women Mm -hmm. and black black trans people um yeah and so i think that we need to prepare for the apocalypse in all of the ways um we need (laughs) to prepare for it in all of the ways so if you do know how to grow things because i i i had a succulent and i had to leave it with my roommate because under my care. What succulent? It, it was a... See, this is why I can't do this plant stuff. I don't even know the name of it, but it had like... I guess it was... It had. It was not an aloe plant, but it was green. Okay, that's <laughs> such a horrible... Okay. That's just <laughs> it was green and it had these like little broad leaves. So it was like... And they were kind of thick broad leaves and I'm going to probably leave this episode and go look it up and be like <laughs> Alyssa can you edit over and be like I know exactly, but, <laughs> but no it's I got these little broad leaves and under my care it it was dying but my lovely um cancer roommate brought it to life <laughs> um and so it's it's now her child um I 
I have some plants. I have I have a tamarind actually. So I was Ooh. my mom. So we eat these these treats called tamarind balls, and it's basically just the flesh of a tamarind, and you ball it up, and then you sprinkle sugar on it. And so my mom mm, brought some oh, for me. I love tamarind. And she was last mm. visiting, and I was like, I'm gonna try to bust these seeds. So basically, okay, bust. I <laughs> I knew this. Bust it this wide I knew open. this man from Saint mm, Vincent mm, when I was in Martinique, mm, and that's what he would say. He would be like, "You just bust the seeds," but it, I mean, germinate <laughs> the seeds. So I tried to do that. I did it. I had like seven. I gave one away, um, and so it was growing really well, and I was getting really excited. I was like, "This is this is literally my baby. I grew it from a seed." And it's been closed for the last week. So the, the leaves, they kind of close up and it's been closed mm. for the last couple of weeks. But I'm, so I think it's dying and I'm really sad. But I have grown food when I was in Martinique, um, grown some vegetables and such. So I have a little bit of experience there. But I think what, what I was also thinking about, besides the arms, because, you know, again, as a Canadian, <laughs> I am not pro, I am anti-weapons, like I'm anti-gun. Mm. so I just I'm just like second amendment rights like what is it even for but you know I'm I'm not really into the whole gun thing and then uh so when you know we were thinking about this episode someone on twitter at the glam academic um she recommended the work of Mina Salami and so since I've been reading Sister Outsider Minna Salami's work really connects with like Audre Lorde's work on feeling and affect, um, you know, especially poetry is not a luxury and the uses of the erotic. So I think that like there is this idea in men that the revolution is about domination. Mm. Whereas like if we're thinking and talking about black feminist futurity, that's really rooted in care and community. Right. So mm-hmm. Salami's book, it, um, it's called Sensuous Knowledge. She, like Audre Lorde, really like values and has us think about the embodied, so the poetic, the erotic, you know, spiritual and emotional intelligence. And then, you know, she contrasts that to what she calls Europatriarchal knowledge. And so in that type of knowledge, there's like a creation of hierarchy among humans and nature, also within humans. And so in this like white Western capitalist patriarchal philosophical paradigm Mm. there's an emphasis on domination of the feminine and of nature and nature is of course understood as feminine whereas if we think about like sensuous knowledge or about you know the erotic and feeling then you know focusing on farming growing food and like connecting with or reconnecting with the land and with nature it was something that like really drew me to my to my research, like when I would talk to farmers in Martinique, you know, they would really talk about this sensuality with the land. Like they love putting their hands in the earth and growing things, you know, having things grow out of the land, like almost seemingly from Mm. nothing. And so Mm. I think that the world would just be a better place if we stopped thinking with this, like revolution is domination and really started thinking more about revolution is like interconnection and and feeling and sensuality that's just me (laughs) yeah I mean I wouldn't say that's just you I think for me I think these things have to come simultaneously like 
especially when when you face an enemy that will stop at nothing to kill you. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I don't go to protests anymore because um, that was something of my youth. <laughs> but I I see these people, you know, out there yeah. marching on the streets. And it's like, you know, we were taught in the civil rights movement that nonviolence was the best thing because it was tied to respectability uh the respectability politics and like being a part of, you know, a certain type of integrationist movement um, that right. I have my own set of theories about, <laughs> but I'm not going to say that on here. Um, but yeah, so just like that set of politics that's, that prioritizes nonviolence, but it's, you know, Fanon talks about violence as a tool of decolonization, right? And like colonization mm-hmm. was such a violent process that, as you mentioned, right, divorces our bodies and our ways of knowing from our, our ways of feeling and how it's important for us to get in, um, back into that. Right. Thinking about care and community, but also for our own bodily safety. So while you may not personally, you know, want to wield a gun, it's okay. You just get with people who do know how to do it and okay. won't shoot you. Right. <laughs> and like, okay. yeah. you know, as they how freak I think me about, out though. Guns really freak me out. I mean, as they, sh- I mean, as they should, like they're very, they're weapons. Like yeah. and they are created to intend to, to kill. So I like, guess definitely not something to play with, but I do think that we're entering into a, a period that we have to think about all the different ways that we need to protect ourselves. And so even if you have to pick up a bow and an arrow, a hatchet, you know, so- something, um, <laughs> then... I, think I could maybe get behind a bow and arrow. Okay, bow and arrow. I, I, I also wanted to do archery. I always wanted to to be... <laughs> not Katniss, though. Not, never oh. that. But, um, but yeah, so just like something because... Who I mean, who knows, honestly, what's going to happen? We already have seen examples of people who literally just in the last few days have been killing folks at these protests without um, yeah. with impunity. So exactly. It's just, it's just the world is so scary. But well, yes, he, I really, he has actually been charged with murder. The young 17 year old minor boy who was cleaning graffiti hours before oh god i don't even want to i don't even want to talk about like like i'm not representation i will say what i mean by impunity is you just took lives Mm -hmm. and i don't believe in this little criminal legal system you know i'm not like arrest people because you know abolition so to me it's like what does arresting you do when you've already taken the life right yeah yeah Mm. another black man jacob blake was shot by police this week. He lived, he survived. We wish him healing, him and his family healing. Mm-hmm. But I just saw too many tweets and comments that were saying things like, America can't stomach this anymore. Mm-hmm. We can't take any more of this. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that popped into my head was, how could you stomach it before? Period. Oh my gosh. Period. Like, mm. I, I don't know. It's like Emmett Till was 1950. His open casket, open casket funeral was 1956. Rodney King was beaten nearly to death on tape in 1991. Y'all still need evidence you're only getting sick of this now 
So, and then, so there's that, that was just like going through my head. But then when they were saying, we can't take any more of this, it just implied that that we is a white person. And it kind of reinforces this idea that black Americans are not truly Americans. Like black folk been tired. Okay. Be tired. Been tired. Tired. And so in thinking about how they can, you know, how they can stand this or how they can stomach this, um, when I read Axel Carrera's quote, or she quotes Sadia Hartman, and Sadia Hartman um, said in an interview that the white bourgeois family can actually live with murder in order to reconstitute domesticity. Mm. So you've read more, like more of Hartman's work than I have. Like, so, you know, what do you make of that? What, what does that mean? <sighs> you know, in my imagination, and I know you love Sadia Arvin. <laughs> I, I love her. In my imagination, we're like best friends. Um, and I hope that, you know, I hope she never hears this. But anyway, so <laughs> um, in other news, um, her first book, Scenes of Subjection, which if you have encountered this book, it's dense. It took me about three years and like five read throughs to really understand it. But she really talks about the ways that whiteness uses the black the black is back again um Mm -hmm. slash the slave to reconstitute itself and so this fungibility that we mentioned earlier of blackness which makes it kind of an everythingness is all purpose kind of thing and Mm -hmm. also simultaneously allows it to exist as nothing yeah is is what makes violence against black people legal right is what makes it fathomable which is like you know people can even think about it right and also justifiable where we can have people in journalism write articles saying that brianna taylor's ex-boyfriend was arrested for drugs so that (laughs) justifies why uh louisville kentucky police needed to shoot her in her sleep the spectacle right of death of torture of the rape of black people reaffirms these racial hierarchies and Hartman argues um, in her book is actually a source of pleasure for white people and and oh. not pleasure like in a sexual what well, can be in a sexual way yeah. I'm not going to exclude that but in the, in the erotic way it's, it's erotic right yeah. it's erotic it, it's this and what what she means at least what I interpret that she means is that it's pleasurable because it reaffirms their constructed humanity and also the ways that they've constructed that they are actually unable to be violated mm-hmm. right and so what do i what do i mean by that right so on one level thinking about these circulations of videos of black death actually brings a sense of pleasure to white people on like you know a psychological psychoanalytic level right because it reaffirms that these systems that they created to hoard power and resources work and actually protect them. So when I see these posts, right, and that say, quote unquote, never again, yeah. um, it reminds me that actually the act of saying never again and also the act of killing of Black people sustains white life. Mm-hmm. So it's like the act of being like, never again, this is horrible, this is deplorable violence, allows them to feel good about themselves on like a conscious level and then also subconsciously that death allows them to feel good about being right. white because they feel exempted from that. Yeah. I mean, in, in response to that, I think that Crera, she pulled these quotes from Christina Sharp's work, which is called in the wake, which, you know, you were just talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really resonated with me. And this, this like question 
of Black Death. And so Christina Sharp, who's quoting Joy James, who you talked about earlier, and Joao Vargas. Ooh, talk about six degrees of citation. <laughs> <laughs> Citational politics on point. <laughs> <laughs> so they ask, like, what happens when instead of becoming enraged and shocked every time a Black person is killed in the United States, we recognize Black death and slow death as predictable and a constitutive aspect of democracy. Mm-hmm. And also another question was, quote, what will happen if instead of demanding justice, we recognize or at least consider that the very notion of justice produces and requires Black exclusion and death as normative, end quote. I would love to talk about that in an episode because you did just mention like abolition and we've had like some really interesting discussion debates about mm-hmm. like voting and abolition. And I remember when people are like, all right, so, you know, this Central Park Karen is about to be charged. Are y'all still abolitionist? And uh, I was just like, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with this. And I know that, you know, you're there. I'm getting there. And I think that that would be a really good um, conversation to have. And, you know, to think about like police and prison abolition, especially now that we know that these prisons are built on these toxic sites and like incarcerated people have been hired out to risk their lives to fight wildfires. Like it just again brings home this idea of like committing to a new ethical now and imagining transformation. And one of the things that I also, we we didn't get to because this episode is running long, but you know, we did want to acknowledge that like environmental racism is hella connected to colonialism. Mm -hmm. There are First Nations reservations in Canada, part of the land we occupy, Turtle Island, that do not have access to clean water or other natural resources. We can witness this like corporate land acquisition issue with the Dakota Access Pipeline and the battle of the the kind of no DAPL Sioux battle and the Wet'suwet'en protests against the coastal gas link pipeline. So we just want to like also acknowledge and address that like for indigenous Mm -hmm. communities environmental racism is both a physical health issue but it also contributes to this cultural erasure beyond what they've already experienced right and (laughs) that is like we're trying to wrap up but just wanted to make sure that yeah we want to make sure that we speak to the struggle and also just like this horrible thing that's happening where now the climate change evangelists as I will call them (laughs) are like we should turn back to indigenous ways of knowing so they turn to black indigenous people and indigenous people and say how do we repair the earth now um and it's like the the caucasity of it all Mm -hmm. um like we do not exist to save you all but I wanted to to bring us to our little wrap up um and, and thinking about the imaginative work that we are doing like we are in the process of changing our world right it's not something that's that we're getting to it's happening mm-hmm. now and i want to say that each and every time we get together to celebrate ourselves to celebrate our lives our breath each other right the, the times of affirmation we have sitting here looking at each other <laughs> on zoom on this podcast hey um we imagine new worlds in which we can care for each other and so these Black feminist anthropologists here sitting here talking to you now look forward um, to growing and glowing with you from the end of this world to the beginning of the new one. And we believe that we will win. Thank you all for listening. If you heard something today that made you laugh, 
helped you rethink something or made you question yourself or the world around you, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and let everyone know that you love Zora's Daughters. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, start a conversation about this episode or send us ideas for future episodes, you can find us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram and Zora's underscore daughters <laughs> on Twitter. I, I have to say it like that. Uh, head to zorasdaughters.com to find transcripts for the episodes, our bios, contact info, and ways to support the podcast. All right. Thanks, y'all. Be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye.